Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Weird House Cinema. This is Rob Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And for today's episode, ooh, I, I feel so excited. I'm, I'm literally tingling. I, I feel like we have unearthed a, a holy artifact that was, I guess, maybe known by many, by many others before. But uh, th- this was my first time seeing today's selection. And it, it has filled me with such light and hope and, and goodwill and cheer. Uh, today's selection is Inframan, also known as The Super Inframan, a 1975 Hong Kong cinema extravaganza that truly must be seen to be believed. This movie has, um, I was trying to think, it, it has an ineffability about the experience of watching it similar to uh, religious or psychedelic experiences. I think you can, when you read the words of people who have seen this movie, they're trying to communicate something that just can't be said. Yeah, yeah, this this movie is something special. And uh, and I had not seen it before either. I was, I think, barely familiar with it. Uh, I think my only real connection to this is that I knew that, that Jonah Ray... Uh, a comedian and actor was a big fan of this film. And I knew that there were elements, there were these costumes in the most recent Netflix seasons of uh, Mystery Science Theater 3000 that copied the skeleton costumes from this movie, uh, you know, did kind of a riff on them, a visual riff. Uh, but, uh, but that was it. Uh, otherwise, this was all new to me. And I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm glad I had not already seen it because I got to appreciate it anew this week. I'm almost a little bit, it's one of those melancholy experiences that's so joyful, but it's also a little bit sad because you know you can never experience it for the first time again. (laughs) Uh, But this is already a movie that I know I will watch probably dozens more times in my life. Uh, It's a new all-time favorite for me. Uh, Among the Weird House Cinema selections, I'd put it right up there with Robot Jocks, Mad Love, and the other, the best of the best. So what is the deal with Inframan? I would say Inframan combines peak eye-popping B-movie craftsmanship with this infectious, pleasing hyperdrive of manic absurdity. I, I wish there were more movies like this, and I'm not being ironic at all. I'm, I'm completely serious when I say that making a movie like this m- must require a certain kind of rare genius. Yeah, absolutely. Um, oh, by the way, I should I should go ahead and throw out, yeah, this is... Some, yeah, sometimes known as Inframan, the Super Inframan, or the original Chinese title for this is Zhong Rin or Chinese Superman. Uh, but yeah, this is a—I th- feel like this movie is just an under-the-tree Christmas morning sort of treat. Uh, uh-huh. You can basically feel the the, the plastic crinkling uh, as you as you watch it for the first <laughs> time. You know, you have to have to undo some twist ties to remove it from the packaging. Um, it's it's hard to imagine the sort of person who would not be won over by this movie. Doctors should prescribe Inframan as a treatment for painful diseases. Hospitals should have TVs that only show Inframan. You can only be so sad while watching Inframan. It's true. So apparently this was one movie. And as far as I know, it might be the only instance ever where uh, the film critic Roger Ebert changed his original star rating uh, years hmm. after his uh, review for this movie. So when it came out, he wrote uh, an absolutely glowing review. I mean, you read the words, it sounds <laughs> like he's describing one of the greatest films he's ever seen, but he only gave it 2.5 stars. 
They, you know, they went on a four-star scale. Uh, but then more than 20 years later, he apparently went back and changed his rating from 2.5 to 3, citing the fact that in the 20 years since he had seen – or more than 20, 20-something-plus 20 years since he had seen Inframan – there was probably not a single month that went by that he didn't at some point find himself thinking of it fondly. Uh, though I, I'm kind of c- confused why he didn't just go straight to four stars. Like, what's holding you back at three? Because when you read his actual words, I think it's clear that he feels like we do, that he understands that the Inframan transcends j- just being a kind of a goofy, zany movie and becomes a kind of genuine masterpiece. It is something to be cherished by the young and old and to be analyzed by generations of scholars and philosophers. No, absolutely. I mean, um, I, I guess with, with Ebert, you never know exactly what you're going to get. Uh, uh, like we've said before, I, you know, sometimes you, you agree with him 100%. Other times, you, you know, you, you want to get in a shouting match with him. But I feel like this, the same Roger Ebert who gave Blade Two three and a half stars <laughs> uh, and I totally agree with that rating. Um, would consider it, you know, bumping it up to three and a half at least for uh, for this <laughs> movie. I don't know. I want to understand these mental constraints, keeping it limited to three. I guess some people are always trying to ice skate uphill. <laughs> Good, um, but no, no. I get you know, rating systems are hard. I mean, how do you? It's 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 a tough uh, job you give yourself if you're going to rate every film you ever watch and. Uh, and, and, you know, have some sort of numerical value system that can apply to films like Inframan, but also to films like, you know, The, the, the Great Gatsby or whatever, you know. Uh-huh. Uh, so I, I realize it's complicated. Now, it should come as no surprise to anyone that uh, psychotronic film chronicler Michael Weldon wrote highly of uh, the Inframan movie. Um, he wrote, quote, almost nonstop laughs and excitement with some great special effects, lots of skulls and a character reading a Dennis Wheatley occult novel. I don't think I noticed that detail, but that's good. Yeah, yeah, uh, May May is reading it uh, late in the film. Okay. This is during the um, largely non-action-oriented portion of the film in which the professor is researching things, Mm -hmm. which, incidentally, this is about an hour into the film, and I'd been loving it, and I'd paused it because I had to do something else, and I was picking it back up at night when my, uh, my, my wife and son were home, and I was like, hey, you guys got to come in here because this is, this is great. Everybody's going to love this. And so they sit down, and I push play, and it's immediately research scene. <laughs> and I was like, seriously, this is, the, this is the longest stretch in the movie in which there are no monsters. Right. Luckily, they stayed with it. Uh, they ended up watching the rest of the film with me, and they both agreed that it was excellent. I I noticed a dynamic where maybe you felt the same thing where when there were scenes of this movie that suddenly slowed down when there was a little bit of downtime and there is not a lot of downtime Mm -hmm. in this movie, but when it arrives, it is somehow hilarious. I think it's something about the, the, the change in pacing when it suddenly downshifts to characters just being still and quiet for a moment i couldn't stop laughing and i I wasn't sure exactly what that was it just feels like oh okay now we're just watching them look at screens for a second Mm -hmm. yeah and uh, i think this is the time to to drive home that this is a shaw brothers picture uh shaw brothers of course the hong kong studio uh noted for its many uh martial arts action films back in the day so this is a this is a film that excels at motion. Uh, if nothing else, like you know going into a Shaw Brothers film that the stunts um, and, and the physical action is going to be excellent. Uh, and with this film, we just have a lot of other excellent things built on top of that framework. I noticed when I was watching this movie and, and foolishly trying to take comprehensive notes on the plot, which <laughs> quickly proved impossible – 
a word I just kept typing over and over was immediately. And I think that fact by itself helps give you a sense of what Inframan is all about. I was trying to think of analogies to communicate the feeling of this movie. And if this makes any sense, to me, Inframan is almost kind of like an early Beatles song. It's like she loves you. It's just tight and fast and instantly in the hook and the catchy melody never stops. Yeah, yeah, I think that's an adequate uh, description. Um, it's 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 worth noting for Weird House Cinema listeners that uh, this is our second Shaw Brothers film that we've covered. The first was 1976's The uh, Oily Maniac, which had one incredible monster, some cool black magic, but also a fair amount of sleaze. Uh, this film, however, is all monsters. It's comic book action and is appropriate for all ages. Um, and uh, yeah, and, and came out in 75. So this is the year before Oily Maniac. And there's more than one connection to be made between the casts. Uh, so how would we even do the elevator pitch for this movie? The first sentence I typed was just prepare to lose your mind. <laughs> That's really good. Uh, when I was thinking on it, I was I, I, I thought Super Inframan is a buffet for the eyes and everything is dessert. That's very, very true. Very good. Um so how to actually boil down the plot, I'll, I'll give it a shot. When a tyrannical witch from a long-lost Ice Age civilization named Princess Dragon Mom, and then there's some alternate uh, titles depending on translation, uh, when she tries to destroy the world with a team of fidgety mutant henchmen, a brave young man named Rayma must volunteer for a dangerous experimental surgery that will put a nuclear reactor in his body and transform him into Inframan, a near-invincible armored hero with thunder fists, and only Inframan can save us now. Yep, that's pretty accurate. Uh, but And yet it does not... It, it does not and cannot fully convey uh, the visual feast that is this film. Now, one thing that's interesting is that while I think this movie is more than the sum of its parts, it, it comes together into this beautiful transcendent whole. You can also quite clearly pick out a lot of the uh, the genre inputs on it. Uh, I think we're not original in observing this. A lot of people have commented that. Uh, a lot of the genre conventions of this movie seem largely derived from certain popular, especially Japanese film and TV genres from the decade before this came out. And so a couple of things to mention here would probably be the influence of the, the so-called Henshin hero shows. Mm-hmm. Um, to describe this for American audiences our age, if you ever watched uh, the Mighty Morphin Power Rangers when you were a kid – and maybe you got the feeling that is is this part of a genre in some way? Does this uh, you know the, these tropes feel kind of well worn, even though maybe I've never seen them before? Well, yes, Mighty Morphin Power Rangers was indeed a sort of Americanization of a long running uh, Japanese TV show genre. Uh, this this Henshin show, which uh, Henshin translates to something like transformation or changing body. These were shows about a regular person who would transform into a hero who usually wore a suit that had some kind of cool elaborate helmet. Not always, but they would change clothes in some interesting way. And so they might have a device or say a magic word, and then they'd go through a morphin sequence like the Power Rangers did. And this would transform them into their, their hero morph where they would have superpowers. So big examples of, uh, of uh, popular Henshin shows from Japan were Ultraman beginning in the mm-hmm. mid-60s. And then there was a show called Cayman Raiders that uh, I think came a little bit later. 
Yeah, Ultraman, of course, we, we covered uh, a, a, a Thai uh, co-production uh, featuring Ultraman titled uh, Hanuman versus Seven Ultraman. Uh, yeah. So if, if you're interested in this type of film and you didn't hear that episode, go back and listen to it. It's pretty fun. Now, this is a rich genre that's also had a huge impact on cartoons, of especially of the 80s and 90s. Uh, a lot of things that would have been seen uh, uh, outside of Japan. Uh, we're talking stuff like Sailor Moon, Thundercats, Silverhawks, He-Man, She-Ra, of course, Voltron. And mm. uh, in the world of animation, I'm, I'm to understand it was particularly useful because it allowed you to reuse that transformation sequence in every episode. And, you know, as much of it as you needed to help you hit your desired um, uh, episode length. Right, yeah. So you could really pad that thing out with stuff that you, you that you had shot, you know, years before. Mm-hmm. Very economical way to make a show, uh, especially I think when you're you're dealing with something like animation, where you know your it's your your cost per frame is pretty high. But while you can clearly recognize the the bones of a of a Henshin influence in in Inframan himself. This movie has a lot of other inputs. There's so much going on. So it clearly has kaiju inputs because there are these assortments of weird monsters that sometimes grow very large. Uh, it, it also has has strong martial arts movie influences. There, there's a lot of great kung fu scenes in it. And there is a, a, a subplot in the middle of it that feels like the movie suddenly shifts into an espionage thriller, like yeah, a brainwashing yeah. sleeper agent movie. And I loved that part. It's, that was absolutely a genius move because yeah. you have so much action and so much monster action going on. You've you've got to find a you got to have a way to pad that out a little bit. You need something else in there, and the espionage, mind washing uh, plot uh, works fabulously. So you and I may have watched different versions of the movie. I, I think I mean, we saw the same thing on the screen. Mm-hmm. I think, but different uh, versions of getting the English translation. Uh, so while I often prefer subtitles to dubbing for foreign films, the dub track on the version of Inframan that I watched, which might be the only English dub, I'm not sure, uh, at least the version I saw was absolutely sublime. The the frantic line de- delivery and, and unusual word choices were perfect. They really add to the gleeful absurdity of the film and inject even more irresistible energy and pleasure into the viewing experience. Uh, so the version I saw, I think, was the the main dub. Like it, it, it seems to be the dub that other reviewers had written about uh, going back to the '70s. So I think it's the original one, and it was the dub that was present when I rented this movie from Google on on YouTube Movies. Uh, so I would say watch this dub, but also uh, make sure that if you do watch this movie. Don't try to watch some low quality rip of this. This movie is gorgeous. It is a feast for the eyes and you really do need to see it in, in full high definition. Yeah, absolutely. I, I watched it on Apple TV, and uh, and I and I had I had the choice uh, via Apple TV as well but to watch it in uh, uh, either dubbed or subtitles. Uh, I I watched it in its entirety with the subtitles, though I did go back and watch some scenes with the dub to get a taste of the dub. Because the thing about a Shaw Brothers film from you know from this era is that the dub is kind of iconic. You know, mm-hmm. um, there's there's something great about the way they're dubbed, and I have to say. Even though I enjoyed hearing the Chinese language and and, uh, and 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 getting the subtitle experience and feeling like I was getting something you know closer to the original viewing experience, there's so much action on the screen. At times, you feel like you, you or I felt like I might have been cheating myself by focusing on the dialogue and translation rather than the the kicks and lasers and tentacles that are happening on the screen. 
Yeah, I would say, at, at least in my experience, the, the burning fuse power of the English dub was definitely part of this art product. Uh, I, I, would, I, would, I couldn't recommend this English dub enough. Yeah, I think the main there there are mainly two points to be made of distinction between the two. One is that it's my understanding that the the dub introduces some plot holes that are not there otherwise. Um, and and oh, certainly, no. I found that when I was looking <laughs> at scenes, for instance, if you do the I did the experiment where I put on uh, the subtitles and the dub at the same time to mm-hmm. see to what extent they matched up. And there were parts of the film where they're just talking about different things entirely. Uh, other parts where, like, you know, the tone is a little off, but essentially this is correct. Uh, uh, the other area is the names of monsters. And, you know, I, I take my monster names seriously. And um, um, uh, I don't know. So, some of the names I liked better uh, in the subtitles than in the dub. Um, for example, uh, Princess Dragon Mom uh, in the uh, she, her name in the uh, the subtitles is Demon Princess Elzebub, which is also a little goofy, but I, I like it. I prefer it to uh, to Dragon Mom. Oh, what? How can you knock Princess Dragon Mom? How could <laughs> I mean like that? That feels so good coming out of my mouth. I just want to wander around the house all day saying Princess Dragon Mom. Oh, and then there's um, a witch eye is another one. Uh, her uh-huh. her female second in command, or one of her female underlings that has the the monster hands with the eyeballs in the palm. Yeah, um, Guillermo del Toro, you did not invent monsters with eyes in the palms of their hands. That is right here in 1975 <laughs> in Inframan. Uh, so, witch eye was or was she called demon witch eye also or witch demon eye sometimes? I, I think so. And then, but but here's the other thing that it, that gets complicated with the names of these monsters. I noticed that in Michael Weldon's write up, he mentioned a few slightly different names for some of these monsters. So that leads me to think that perhaps there were different, at least different subtitles at different points. I mean, he, I mean, this was a book from the 1980s uh, where he's writing about this. So who knows? So uh, I, I'm wondering just how many different names we have for these, these monsters, counting the uh, original uh, language uh, uh, versions, the, the subtitles, the dubs, uh, who, who knows? Well, so in my dub, which I was called She Demon. Simple but effective. But but whatever you call her, She Demon is divine. You, it's a, it's a very uh, I hate to cite an internet meme, but it's a very we have no choice but to stand kind of uh, situation. Like <laughs> every moment she's on screen is just like, damn, She Demon is so cool. What religion is it that worships her? Can I join that? <laughs> All right. Well, why don't we go ahead and get a taste of some audio here. Uh, for this, I, I, I picked out what is a, an English language TV spot for this movie, which I particularly love because it has this vibe of, um, of uh, hey, everybody, go grab the kids. Inframan is about to kick skulls in the face. Mm-hmm. Who dares to battle the deadliest creatures of the universe? Watch out, because nothing can stop Inframan. He's six million years beyond bionics, beyond the time barrier, beyond your wildest imagination. The ultimate adventure with the ultimate superhero. An explosion of excitement with Inframan. Sadly, you could only hear that. You could not see that. And uh, again, uh, that is one of the things about Inframan. It must be seen to be experienced. (laughs) 
All right, well, let's talk about some of the, the people involved here. First of all, yeah, like we said, this is a Shaw Brothers uh, studio film. This is a studio that operated from 1925 through 2011 and was the largest film production company in Hong Kong, making a significant impact not only in Chinese cinema, but internationally as well. The Shaws were Chinese film entrepreneurs. Three of the four Shaw brothers, Runji, Runmi, and Rundi, founded a film distribution company in 1925, operating out of Shanghai and Singapore. Runmi and the, er, their youngest uh, brother, Run Run Shaw, operated the Singapore base, which would uh, become the Shaw organization before taking over the Hong Kong-based sister company, Shaw and Sons Limited. In 1958, a new company, Shaw Brothers, was born. Runmi, who produced this film, lived 1901 through 1985, and Run Run lived 1907 through 2014. Man, I love seeing that Shaw Brothers logo at the beginning of a film. Yeah. You see the hammered glass, and and the it, it just it feels so good. It does. You, you know, you're you're in for some action. Uh, and uh, if anyone wants to hear more about Shaw Brothers, uh, I believe we went into more detail in the Oily Maniac episode. And if you want to find that, um, you can either dig around in the stuff to blow your mind archives, or you can go to samutamusic.com. S e m u t a m u s i c. That is, um, that's a blog that I maintain, and I just list all the films there. So occasionally people write in and say, hey, where's a list of all the films you've done for Weird House Cinema? Well, that is where you can find it. All right. The director of Inframan was uh, Sean Hua, who lived, uh, well, I, he's still alive as far as I know, born 1942, a cinematographer turned director, active from 1974 through 1992. His other works include 1981's Kung Fu Zombie and 1981's Bloody Parrot. You know, another one of my favorite Weird House Cinema, in fact, I'd say multiple of my favorite Weird House Cinema movies we've done were directed by people who uh, who were mainly cinematographers and mm. then and then shifted to the director's chairs because uh, Mad Love, Carl Freund, originally yep. a cinematographer and then directed the movie. Maybe that's because, I guess, uh, you have a cinematographer in charge. This is somebody who really understands film as, uh, as, as a visual compositional medium that needs to be a moment-to-moment feast for the eyes. Yeah, that's true. I mean, it, it makes you wonder about the other situations, you know, like writers turn directors, actors turn directors, you know, or these cases where or musicians turn directors, where, you know, whatever their, their previous and prior uh, uh, focus was, how, to what extent does that end up uh, becoming a part of their film vision as well? A lot of what I love about this movie is the way it would just like pile one crazy image on top of another in Mm -hmm. in such rapid succession that I would be just my mouth is hanging open while I'm enjoying the look of one scene. And then it before I'm even done having that feeling, it cuts to something else that also looks strange and amazing. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, the writer on this film was Kwang Ni, born 1935, a one-man screenplay machine with 233 writing credits on IMDb. Whoa. Known for, such writing, uh, for writing such Hong Kong action films as The 36th Chamber of Shaolin from 1978, The Wesley's Mysterious File from 2002, and The Singing Killer from 1970. And uh, he also acted on occasion. 233 writing credits in a career of how many years? How many screenplays is that per year? <laughs> Uh, yeah, it, uh, it was a lot. <laughs> I think there's even, uh, uh, I don't think he's active anymore, but I think there was at least one recent film or one upcoming film that looked like maybe it was based on this uh, Wesley's mysterious file thing that he had done earlier. Oh, okay. 
Now, uh, on to the cast. Well, our lead here playing uh, Rayma uh, slash Inframan is none other than Danny Lee, born 1952. Oh, Danny Lee is just great. Oh, yeah, yeah. People may remember he was the lead in The Oily Maniac as well. Uh, but he's probably better known for such films as The Killer, The Untold Story, The Eight Immortals Restaurant, and City on Fire. Um, a Hong Kong actor, film producer, screenwriter, director who, uh, at least later in his career, it, it made a kind of specialty out of playing cops. He played a lot of detectives and cops. But this is early Danny Lee, uh, I think, before he had even adopted that moniker, uh, uh, when, in which case you know, he's in full like physical prime action hero leading man roles uh, situation. At least in this movie, he's he's almost got that uh, that El Santo energy, somebody who, who just seems to like beam goodness and virtue out of his face. Yeah. I don't think Lee is active as an actor anymore, but he's still directing and producing, including the upcoming The Little Monk, which looks to be a Shaolin action movie about a child monk. So uh, sounds good. Now, uh, the professor in this film, uh, Professor uh, Lu Ying Ti, or I think in your version, is he Professor Chang? Yeah, Professor Chang. Okay. Um, played by uh, Si Wang, who lived 1930 through 2016. Another actor who was also in The Oily Maniac. Uh, he also was in Mafia vs. Ninja from 1985, as well as John Woo's A Better Tomorrow from 1986, which starred Chow Yun-Fat. He is also wonderful in this movie and really uh, enhances the uh, absurd pleasure of some scenes, like the scenes where he's describing uh, to to Rayma, the the young man, played by Danny Lee, who becomes Inframan, describing to him the process he's going to have to go through to become Inframan, and mm-hmm. talking about how painful and dangerous it will be, and all the stuff he's going to do to his body, but delivering it in this uh, wonderfully somber way. It's so good. Yes, yeah, he's he's really good. It has a lot of screen time. All right, uh, we mentioned um, Dragon Mom, uh, aka Demon Princess Elzebub, who is. One of the most notable uh, role uh, performances, oh, yeah. characters in this this film. Like when she hits the screen, you're like, "Wow, uh, this this film is something else." Yeah, every time she comes on screen, car alarms are going off outside your house. It's just yeah. like it is a kinetic impact. Yeah, well, I mean, she is because she, she hits the screen and she's she's visually. Uh, like the costuming, uh, you know, is, is incredible. And then she's immediately ordering monsters around and like using a magic whip. So, uh, you know, just commands everybody's attention. Uh, she has a, a, a yeah, she's got a great whip and she throws people into a, a bottomless pit, which actually does have a bottom mm-hmm. and it is on fire. And she likes to tell people how many thousands of degrees it is that they will be burning when they reach the bottom. Oh, yeah. It's like 3,000, 6,000. It's, it's a very yeah. high. So uh, she is played by uh, the, the the actor Terry Liu, and uh, I don't have any, uh, you know, as far as I know, her birth date is unknown. This might be her most notable role, but she appeared in a number of horror and horror-esque Hong Kong films during the 1970s, including The Oily Maniac from 76. And aside from The Oily Maniac connection, I think you can basically say the same thing for the other main female actors in this film. Uh, that's Manzu Yan, who plays Mei Mei, that's the professor's daughter, and Dana, uh, who plays Demon Witch Eye. Um, th- they were both actors who were mostly active just in the 1970s and did a lot of roles in um, sort of horror, bloody films. Well, yeah, both Terry Lou and Dana are are just fabulous in this. Every scene with them is just rocket fuel. You know, uh, I forgot, almost forgot to mention, uh, Bruce Lee is in this. Really? 
Well, not I did Bruce, not notice that. <laughs> not Bruce Lee with two E's. That's Bruce Lee with one E. That's Bruce Bruce Lee. It's kind of um, uh-huh. uh, so. The actor uh, Chin Lung Hong, uh, born nineteen fifty, uh, was not going by Bruce Lee yet. Um, uh, but later, after this film, he apparently broke out as a Bruce Lee clone. <laughs> so okay. uh, that was uh, interesting. I'm not really familiar with any uh, Bruce Lee clone movies, but uh, when I looked at some of the the cover art for them, I like, oh yeah, yep, he's going for it. He's putting himself <laughs> in Bruce Lee mode, uh, which uh, the, you know, transmorphers phenomenon. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, you got to be, you know, you got to have a certain amount of, uh, of fitness and. Um, and physical charisma to even aspire uh, to, um, to to be a knockoff Bruce Lee. So, you know, kudos. Right. And uh, I should just also mention that there, uh, basically I have a spot in the outline where I just put, and the rest, because this is a Shaw Brothers movie. This is a big martial arts action movie. And this film features an extended cast of Shaw Brothers regulars, who you might recognize if you watch these films and you go deeper into the filmography for, uh, for Inframan. Uh, the action in this film is great. And I have to say, the monster suit acting is also just noticeably superb because we've mentioned films before, uh, you know, where they they have a monster suit and they just kind of just, oh, we need to find somebody that's tall enough to wear this, or we need to find somebody who, uh, you know, who can convince us that they they are the best person to walk like an ape. Um, but <laughs> uh-huh. with this film, I mean, you have the the Shaw Brothers uh, ensemble, so you have individuals who are highly trained and in peak physical condition that are that are you know that excel at physical performance and so it's therefore not surprising that each suit comes alive with its own crazy energy like um the 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 plant monster that we encounter is not just standing there sweating in the suit no i mean he's in constant motion and the tentacles are constantly moving and likewise all the other monsters in this film they they all have some sort of unique physical energy that's going on that 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 makes the thing come alive far more than it would be if it was just standing there oh yeah i think i mentioned earlier that 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 uh uh, princess uh, dragon mom's henchmen are all quite fidgety but that in in such a good way like every scene in in princess dragon mom's ice layer below the earth is fantastic but they're they're made so wonderful because so you'll usually have the main action going on with princess dragon mom maybe like giving orders to a particular mutant or or talking with uh, you know discussing plans with she demon mm-hmm. um but then meanwhile, in the background, the monsters are just kind of screwing around. They'll be like moving. And there's there's one monster that looks like a scaly thing with a cylindrical head and a giant mustache. He's yes. got a you know, crimson mustache monster that breathes fire. And he's never still. He's constantly just wobbling around with his arms flailing in the air. And that may sound simple, but once you watch it, you really, well, what a superb touch. It just makes everything in the scene more uh, more electric. Yeah, for a movie that that needed, or at least ended up with six different uh, monster designs for this crew of monsters serving um, uh, Elzebub, not not counting the the, the the skeleton men, which we'll get to in a bit, um, but but for to have a roster of six monsters. Uh, like none of them are losers. They're all tremendous designs, and they uh-huh. all—they're all different from one another. Like we have the the two robots that um, I think are sometimes called the Iron Fist robots. We have uh, this hairy gentleman who I think is sometimes just called Long-Haired Monster. That that looks like it's more inspired by uh, like traditional. Uh, 
Asian um, you know, like ghost and monster motifs. Mm-hmm. We have my one of my two favorites is Mutant Drill, who is this kind <laughs> of weird golem-looking monster, kind of res- resembles the oily maniac to a certain extent, but has uh-huh. like two metal um, uh, attack hands, one of which is a devastating drill. Yeah, he's a, he's a dreadful bipedal frog with like a with like a claw metal claw hand and a metal drill hand. And I actually didn't realize one of his hands was a drill until a good ways into the movie. There's just so much going on, you can't catch it all. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's Spider Monster, uh, who looks like a big, cool red spider. And then there's Plant Monster, which I think is sometimes translated as an octopus monster, but he's clearly a plant. His, his yeah. powers, which he really gets to show off in this movie, are all based about like going into the ground and growing up out of the ground and then doing plant things. Oh, there's such a good scene where he attacks the human science space. Mm-hmm. And uh, so he's supposed to go there and destroy it and I think kill Professor Chang or something. And he he like plants himself into the ground and turns into these rapidly growing vines that penetrate the walls. And Inframan has to defeat him by like x-raying the vines to find where his heart is. Uh, and th- there's one part I absolutely loved because again it was one of these things where like the new ideas just keep piling on so fast so he has just started attacking the base and he's reaching his uh his vine tentacles in and and you know grabbing grabbing the scientists and flinging them around um and i think there, there's some kind of emergency like they have to uh they have to reactivate the power or inframan will be killed during his surgery and so they're they're frantically trying to do that while uh while the octopus vine monster is uh is is gumming everything up with his arms and then suddenly all these workers just bust in through a door with circular saws and start sawing at the vines <laughs> and that, yeah. when that happened i was like i was just releasing gusts of 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 crazy laughter uh Oh my god, it, it's just so good. There were moments in this where, and it, I guess it's just about the frantic pace of the action, and just and also just how how well it's put together. There were moments where I thought, oh my goodness, the monsters might win. You know, like in, yeah. the, in the brief amount of time that you're actually able to think uh, during this film. I mean, it's all happening. This movie is happening now. You know, there's not a lot of time yeah. for reflection. You're experiencing it, and therefore there were times where I was like, oh my goodness, I think they got him. Come on, Inframan. You know, I'm, yeah, uh, it was it was really great. Now, we can't list everyone involved in the awesome look of this film, but I, with the, I thought I would point out that um, Michio Mikami did the special effects on this film. He's credited for special effects. Uh, Mikami worked on a few different films, one of which is an insane-looking film called Goki, a Body Snatcher from Hell from 1968, which seems to have space blobs and vampires in it, directed by Hajime Sato. Um, might have to come back to that one, but he also did special effects on a 1978 film titled Message from Space. Oh, okay, okay. So I see the connection. I mean, M- Message from Space is not nearly on the level of Inframan, I think. Mm-hmm. Inframan is, is in a class of its own, but I, I see similarities. A lot of what was great about Message from Space was like these scenes just full of bizarre visual variety in the composition of the shot where there's just all these different strangely dressed characters in a beautifully decorated room, simultaneously visually interesting and funny. Uh, and, and the same is true about this movie, but, but even to a much greater extent. Yeah. 
And real quick, the music here, uh, Yung Yung Chin is credited with the music on this one, but I understand that this picture reuses music from previous Shaw Brothers productions, so nothing about it particularly stood out to me, uh, but it's fine. It's good. It's perfectly good music for this film. Well, there are moments where I thought that the music really added to the comedy. So, for mm-hmm. example, the uh, the music in the opening credit sequence, I mean, so the opening credit sequence is kind of James Bondish in a yeah, way. Yeah. It, it had a kind of, uh, you know, psychic kaleidoscope. But then the music was almost kind of circus music. Like I was imagining yeah. that this was a vision that Hunter S. Thompson would be hallucinating while he's wandering around in the Circus Circus Casino. Yeah, yeah. There's so much visual flair in this. The yeah, the credits, the... Uh, the, the the parts of the movie where you see the schematics for Inframan are just beautiful. Yeah. Um, like I'm I'm always it always takes me out whenever a movie decides to like show you the pages of a of a like an, an evil book or show you some artwork or something or another or or you know blueprints. And if they don't look right, if something feels off about them or rushed, it instantly takes me out. But these were beautiful. They look like from they're from another dimension. Okay, well, I guess we're getting toward the part where in a normal episode we would we would break down the plot more. I, I think it's just impossible to try to and, – and, and, and fruitless to try to explain <laughs> the plot of Inframan scene by scene. I think it makes more sense for us to just talk about a few more sort of themes and highlights of the movie. Yes. But one thing where I do want to get in a little granular detail is is trying to explain the feel of the movie from the very first few scenes. So – after the credits finish, uh, we go straight to a van full of children singing a merry song. It's driving mm-hmm. along a mountain road, and the kids are singing. And then just there is an immediate flying reptile attack. I, <laughs> I love how fast this movie gets into it. After the credits finish, I think there are literally about eight seconds before the earth starts shaking and belching up monsters. Yeah, it's this fabulous scene, too, where like big big rubbery wing monster that looks great crashes onto like a, a highway and then it instantly vanishes into thin air and then an earthquake just rips the, the the earth apart yeah so before you even understand what's going on it's earthquake giant pterodactyl uh like the the, the mutant dogs from ghostbusters kind of mm-hmm. thing i almost wonder if they were inspired by the look of the uh of uh, Princess Dragon Mom in her monster form in this movie, because I, I know Dan Aykroyd is a fan of, of great B movies, so that, yeah. that may have been an influence there. I wouldn't, I wouldn't put it past him. Uh, but th- then there's that, and then suddenly, so the kids are out of the van, and then the van gets sucked down into a ravine with the driver still in it, screaming bloody murder. And then you you don't even have time to understand what's happening here, but then instantly you're seeing something else. A city is on fire, and everybody's running around screaming, what city is this? I don't know. We're at T plus 45 seconds since the credits have finished, and there's just mayhem, and everybody running around, and everything's on fire. And the, it was, for some reason, the thing that struck me the funniest about this is that all the people carrying luggage <laughs> while mm-hmm. the fires are burning – and then, uh, the, and then at about 70 seconds in or T plus 70 seconds after the credits, we're also onto something else after the burning city, there's like a giant radio dish and a motorcade. And then we meet the professor and, uh, there's already a press gaggle shoving microphones in his face. And they want to know, is it an attack by another planet? What kind of monsters are they? And the professor is having to push through them to, to get down to business. This, of course, is Professor Chang. And he goes into this place 
place where everybody's wearing these, uh, it's like a science center, but everybody's wearing these shiny uniforms mm-hmm. where they look like they're members of ABBA. Yeah. And, even the professor's lab coat is yeah. like silver and shiny. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it was at this point where I was like, I have to stop trying to take comprehensive notes because it, the movie is just too much too fast. And I'm not I, I, like, I was pausing it literally every couple of seconds yeah, I mean, if we if you were to make a note about every crazy cool thing you saw in this movie, uh, or if we tried to talk about every crazy cool thing we saw in this movie, like we'd we'd never finish. You know, um, so many films, it's like if it has that one really weird thing you can focus on and and dwell on, uh, you know, you can have a good time with it. But th- th- yeah, there's just so much in this film. It's just it's it's just you know visual overload in the best sense. So obviously this movie is going to have a lot of action, a lot of uh, monster fights, you know, uh, a lot of martial arts fighting, but then also sort of gadget fighting with monsters. And I got to say, this was this was top notch fighting. I, I am of the opinion. I know I've said this on the show before that uh, a lot of times action in movies is actually is, is quite boring uh, yeah. because I think some, you know, subpar filmmakers think, well, uh, you know, you just got to like put some action in there. Like they think of action as just like a block of some runtime that will liven things up because there's violence going on. But violence in itself is not exciting or interesting. If it's like dramatically static, there's got to be, you know, drama to the action. There's there have to be change ups. There have to be interesting things happening during the fighting. Yeah. I mean, ultimately, a choreographed fight needs to tell a story. Yeah. And if your film... Uh, like style is a bunch of like I've, I've seen films before where they have like truly some some great looking stunt work going on but if you cut it in such a way that you can't follow it there's no like there are no beats to it uh, yeah. you know there, there's there's no back and forth like you, you can't really get into it and uh, so yeah the the action in this film you know perhaps unsurprisingly given the Shaw Brothers uh, production of it um, the, the action's excellent uh, like every, all the stunts are are tremendous um, everything feels real, even with, even though you have these, you know, at times ridiculous uh, elements going on, like like flying lethal kicks and exploding spears and uh, you know fire breathing and laser beams. It's it still has a very intense physicality to it. Oh yeah, and the, and they know how to make the the action more exciting by not just having punching and kicking back and forth going on for a long time. Like they keep changing mm-hmm. it up with different tactics. Uh, yeah. And I was actually re- repeatedly impressed by the ways that Inferman came up with strategies for defeating the different monsters. Uh, so, for example, you've got the the robots that shoot the spiky balls out of their arms, basically on slinkies. You know, they're yes. they're slinky retractable robots. And how he defeats them is by tangling up their slinkies. Genius. Mm-hmm. Genius. I mean, that, that makes perfect sense, actually. Yeah. And that was after he tried to use lethal kick on them, uh, yeah. which is this fabulous double-footed flying kick that and he says, uh, lethal kick uh, while doing it. Um, he had used that successfully on a few of the other monsters, and then now it doesn't work. Now we have to go on to the next. You know, it, it just, it's, it's, it's beautiful. So we mentioned earlier that uh, I think we both really enjoyed the the sudden shift where the movie goes from this big monster sci-fi action thing into an espionage movie for a few mm-hmm. minutes where one of the human scientists is uh, is kidnapped by by Princess Dragon Mom 
and they take her down uh, they take him down to the base and uh she demon there points this giant gun at his head that like laser brainwashes him and we see yeah. a little animated screen readout of his brain uh, and then he is turned into a sleeper agent for Princess Dragon Mom with green eyes, mm-hmm. uh, like his eyes glow green, and they, they send him back to like do spy work. He, he's trying to steal the plans for Inframan so that Princess Dragon Mom will know exactly what his weakness is. And that whole sequence was so cool, especially – I like the way that – this was a simple touch, but – the way they show that he's different when his eyes are not glowing green and shooting lasers at people, when he's reinfiltrating the base where he worked, they just put a little bit of makeup under his eyes. Like he's dark, yeah. you know, his, his the undersides of his eyes are darkened. So something looks off about him. Uh, but everybody's just like, oh, hey, welcome back. Yeah, yeah. I really don't want to spoil too much. I mean, this is one that I hope, you know, I hope everybody sees at some point. So I don't want to spoil too much about the little details of of each battle, but uh, there are some great parts where, where a monster suddenly decides to uh, get huge, you know, to grow to, to, to Kaiju size. And then, um, and then Inframan grows in turn. I didn't know he had that power, but he like sticks his fist up in the air and then he transforms into giant Inframan. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, the, the, the final battle down in the, uh, in the ice palace of the earth where princess dragon mom lives is also just wonderful. Yeah, and there's a there's a penultimate battle too on the surface that I, I really love because it's between Team Inframan in their like ABBA esque uh, costumes and mm-hmm. the skeleton um, army that's serving uh, Princess Elzebub, which we haven't really described completely, but they're it's kind of like bicycle helmets with an actual skull face underneath it and horns and these cool exploding spears. They they look amazing, and this is like a big epic battle with I don't know like at least 20 stunt uh, men on the, on the scene at one time, flying uh-huh. all over the place. Stuff is blowing up. And there's it's, it's also just really well shot. Like there's one terrific pan across the action uh, that is absolutely beautiful and conveys a sense of epic battle better than I think most epic battle films that I've seen. Last thing I got to mention, I could not stop thinking about that shot where – after the monsters go out and kidnap uh, doc, uh, Professor Chang's daughter, and we just see them riding on a boat. Oh, <laughs> God, that's the, the power boat. Oh, it's so good. The power boat's cutting through the water, going back to the, the evil island fortress, mm-hmm. and they're all just chilling on the boat. Yeah, it's like Skull Guy to one side of him, Monster to the other. And as my, my wife pointed out, she got to watch this part, and she loved it, too. She's like, you also see the professor do this kind of awkward uh, necktie adjustment. And he's like, uh-huh. oh, it's so good. <laughs> it's windy out here on the water today. <laughs> yeah, l- like I say, both my, my wife and son were, 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 were totally won over by this film. My son was a little um, hesitant to watch it. He was like, I showed him the trailer, and he's like, I don't know. It doesn't look like it has as much of a plot, which on one level – you know that's a good read, but but uh, but then it's when foolish. he was foolish, foolish. Yeah. <laughs> well, he's really into the the movie uh, Shang Chi that came out the, the 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 new Marvel film, which is in my opinion excellent, and uh, and and he loved it too. It has you know action and great characters and story. So mm-hmm. you know that's a, that's a high bar to set for your your martial arts films. Uh, so at first he was a little hesitant, and at first he was like, I would give this mar- the martial arts in this film, I think a six. Um, but uh, I'm not sure out of how many. I think he's using a 10-point scale. I'm not sure. Okay. But as it proceeded, he was like, no, I take it back. This is, this is great. This is so funny. I love it. 
So. Yeah, I mean, it's a different kind of the, you, you make a big budget uh, movie today and there's obviously a lot you can do with lots of money and, and the technology, you know, CGI and all that. But I think I have even more respect for the kind of sh- sheer creative force and genius that allowed you to do so much with the more limited resources available in 1975. Yeah, I, I think as, as my wife pointed out, you really have to sort of look to films like um Barbarella or Flash Gordon to find like Western counterparts that kind of match it for just tremendous sets and outfits. Yeah. So I'm going to speak on Roger Ebert's behalf. I think the changing to three stars was an error. He meant to do four. That was just a typo. I give it four stars as well. This is one of my new all time favorites. Uh, I, I'm going to have to find it. Like what's, what's the best uh, like disc of this to own? Because I know I will be revisiting it time after time for the rest of my life. Yeah, I'm going to either have to buy it or rent it again because uh, my son only watched the last 30 minutes and he was asking me this morning, he's like, oh, what happened before? Uh, t- tell me <laughs> about it. And I'm like, well, we'll just have to watch it again. So uh, yeah, you can you can buy or rent this film digitally at various websites. We mentioned a couple already. Um, but 88 Films also has a wonderful looking Blu-ray uh, out of the film that offers the restored uncut HD transfer. And I believe that's what we were watching as well. Um, uh, in in digital form. Uh, there are also various international formats available out there, but again, we got to stress, if you watch this film, watch it in the best visual quality possible. Uh, don't settle for a rip. Agreed. I mean, I guess if you get the chance to see it on the big screen, go for it. Um, I, I, oh, I that would be amazing. Yeah. So uh, anyway, yeah, g- great film, highly recommended. Uh, yeah, one, one, of the, one of the best we've watched on Weird Al Cinema here. Speaking of which, if you want to watch other episodes of Weird House Cinema, well, um, I told you where they're archived earlier, but you can catch new episodes every Friday in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed. We are primarily a science and culture and curiosity uh, podcast with core episodes that come out on Tuesdays and Thursdays. We have a short form artifact that comes out on Wednesdays. We have listener mail on Mondays, rerun on the weekend. But on Fridays, that's when we just uh, set most of our serious concerns aside and just focus in on a weird film. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 